Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, the brand worn by John McEnroe, Vitas Garolitis, Novak Djokovic, and Gabriella Sabatini. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use the code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. Today's guest was born and raised in Oakland, California. He won 20 pro tournaments and in 1990 got to four in the world. He is one of tennis's elite coaches and is now regularly heard on ESPN's tennis coverage. He is a friend of the show. Brad Gilbert is today's guest. My man, are you back in Malibu? Is that what's happening? I'm in Malibu, yeah. I'm in Mr. G's office right here. Beautiful, foggy morning. It was kind kind of toasty yesterday. Gentlemen, you here, former world number four, friend of the show, coach to many author of uh, Winning Ugly and Winning Ugly 2. Is that is, is, it, is there two Winning Uglies? There would be one Winning Ugly, but I added some chapters, okay. you know, like two, three chapters. I also wrote another book. God, I don't even know how long ago it was. 15, you know, 18 years ago, I've Got Your Back. And what's the difference between I've Got Your Back and Winning Ugly? It's a, it's a different narrative, a little different narrative. Is it still coaching lessons? Yeah, yeah, well, you know, stuff that I learned, you know, it's a little bit more about me, you know, and my, you know, some of my clerks. And that's Brad Gilbert, everybody. Uh, you should recognize his voice from uh, all the broadcasting he does. And uh, how was your time at the U.S. Open uh, broadcasting? You know, every year I go to the Open, it was, I think, the 40th Street year that I went. And I think it takes you back to when you were a kid. You're playing against the wall and you're thinking about one place that you ever wanted to go to was the U.S. Open. So I don't take that for granted. I still every year that I go there, you know, I get an amazing feeling and buzz because remember when we were kids, it wasn't like you could Google things or see things or know about <laughs> things. So a lot of times it was thinking and dreaming about it. My man, you know, we do a five set format. I want to get right into this. The first set is the off the court report. The tennis world received news just a few days ago that Andre's dad, Mike Agassi, passed. I think he was 90 years old. Safe to assume you had some interaction with him over the course of your oh, life? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, sad, you know, very sad. Um, he was, you know, one of those tennis dads, can be a bit of a crazy tennis dad. At time. But when I coached Andre, he had already, he, he wasn't, you know, meddling then. And he was just, like, constantly thinking about, believe it or not, evolution and, and fixing things and, you know, racket technology and ball machines, and, but incredibly passionate, you know, about tennis and getting better. Do you recall the first time you ever met him? Um, I mean, the first time that I spent time with him when I was coaching um, Andre, I, you know, I had met him, but I don't think I'd ever spent it, you know, really talked to him. And, and, and maybe the first few times that I practiced with Andre at his dad's house uh, on his court. And what was that like? And then that's when I saw all those ball machines in his shed and all of his inventions. So that's a real thing, the, the crazy ball machines. Yeah, yeah, you know. And then, and, no, 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 let me just ask you, did he, and he would take existing ball machines and tweak them 
Or, yeah. he, or he made them from scratch. Like, um, you know, like some of those TV shows, <laughs> like there would be a character. Like, let's say he was the maintenance man of the building, or he was like uh, the fix-it guy. That would be Mike, and I think, like, he had this shed underneath the court, and Andre said he always had a shed, and he was always working on crazy, you know, stuff, you know, and loved stuff with strings, with rackets, with technology, with ball machines. He was crazy about ball machines. I think he had turned some later in life, some of the ball machines, into pitching machines for Andre's son. Turned the ball machine into pitching machines? Oh, yeah. Have you spoken to Andre? I have, yeah. Yeah, um, and, it, 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 you know, I'll just keep that, you know, be, yeah, I, but I definitely spoke to, to Andre a few times. It's never an easy thing when your dad passes, that's for sure. Let's move into the second set. This is the On The Court Report. Man, I gotta tell you, I'm still kind of juiced up from the U.S. Open. I felt like that was one of the greatest two weeks there's ever been. Sometimes you have, you know, kind of a forethought what's going to happen, you know, or you have a really good idea what's going to happen before it does. To tell you that, like, that first week, there was a few things that, like, I saw that, like, I thought I never would see. First of all, the amazing amount of five-set matches we had in the Mets. I mean, it was just a plethora of five-set matches that first week. But did I read that there was, like, 33 five-setters? Something insane? I think it was 34 or 35. I mean, I, I don't know what the final tally was, but we had tons, like, early, and a bunch of two-sets to none comebacks. And something that I thought, you know, I felt like the MVP of the tournament was the crowd. Obviously, we didn't have the crowd in 2020, and we had this incredible crowd in 2021, and they lifted some players that you were like, whoa, I didn't see them getting behind a Leila Fernandez the way they did, a Carlos Alcaraz, you know? And then all of a sudden, there would, there would be matches on some courts where there was two non-Americans, and then they'd be rooting. And it, it was, you know... And then to see what happened and unfolded on the women's was just like, you know, whoa. With regards to the women's draw, we'll start. I'd like to talk about the women for a second. Are we seeing essentially like the rumblings of almost a lost generation where <laughs> Svitolina, Benchich, Sabalenka, they, they've been unable to kind of come through. They seem to get towards the deep water and they're not winning those big matches. They're not closing the show. Uh, well, Sabalenka is young. She's 23 years old. Um, yeah. So she's just coming into her own. Spitalina is a little more, you know, she's a little older now. I mean, but been around a long time, a little bit like Rwanska. You know, she's there a lot. The difference between 1 and 2025 in the women's has probably never been closer. You know, and so often you do have somebody that's one that's a very dominant number one, like we saw from Serena. Or we have, you know, some players that rack up a lot. There's, you know, who knows? Maybe we're in a cycle now since since Serena had her baby. You know, we've had Osaka's been probably, uh, is, is obviously been the biggest winner with four slams. 
But, you know, who knows what, where we'll be in the next four years. I mean, we, we just had a stretch of, like, I think it was four slams, 16 different semifinalists in the women's. So you can see. But I do think that there, there's a situation now, maybe with, you know, with Renekanu. Maybe she's going to step up and be the next player. But she just, that, that's almost the coolness of women's tennis right now. You don't know. That was my question. Do you have a feel for if Radakanu and, and Layla are flashing the pan or the real thing? Did you watch their quality? Do, do, you have a, do you have an opinion about their quality? I mean, I saw all of Renekanu's matches. I interviewed her after she, after she qualified. She was so pumped. Um, and she actually beat the girl who played at Pepperdine. It was like the number four seed. You, you were just saying that you watched all of Radakanu's matches from qualities through. Yeah, we did a couple of her matches in the qualies and did, uh, did her last round qualies match against the number four seed, Meyer Sharif, uh, who played at Pepperdine a couple of years ago. First Egyptian woman to be top 100, and she beat her like pretty convincingly. It was like one in four. But the last couple of games was a good tussle. There was a great crowd out there. And I interviewed her after the match. Um, and it was hot that day. Remember, it was hot all qualies long. Um, and she was really pumped. The first week was hot. It was toasty hot. Um, and she was pumped to quality. And, you know, she was just coming off a finals where she lost to another 18-year-old in Chicago, Towson. Um, and, I, and I was thinking she had a pretty tough, I remember when I saw her draw. I was thinking, okay, interesting first round. Brady hasn't played all summer. She's seated. She's got that draw. And then Brady pulled out of the section. And then a lucky loser went into that spot. And Renekanu did have a great draw the first week. For somebody ranked 150, you know, she didn't play anybody. You still beat the people. But it was like all of a sudden she blitzed three players. And she was into the round of 16. And it was like I still didn't think that, like, if you were going to tell me she was going to win it and win it convincingly way, I would have never believed it. But each match that you saw that she played, she just went straight through people. Um, I was impressed with her. She didn't drop a set, man. She only lost. She didn't drop a set. She only went to five games once in the second round of the qualifiers. So in the main draw, 14 sets, 6-4 or less, 20 sets, 7-5 or less. It's like you, you can't even comprehend what she did. Like, and all of a sudden, it's like, man, just, she, she was just a wrecking ball. What about her quality? What about what she does well? What about the, the, the power that she possesses or the lack of, what do you think of her? Um, well, t a few things that surprised me. First of all, I didn't realize she's, she's bigger than I thought. She's like 5'9". Um, she moves a lot better than when I saw her play at Wimbledon, but it's hard to kind of quantify your game and movement sometimes on grass. Um, and it's amazing what happened to her Wimbledon. She put it behind her so quickly, but I liked how she took the ball early. She went to big target. And for our listeners, she got to the 16 at Wimbledon. Ranked like 350 as a wild card, coming straight from finishing her high school exams. And she defed because she got a no, panic she didn't attack. Deep, Sorry. But, uh, she retired. She, you know, I think the, the tournament doctor advised her to retire because of, um, of accelerated heart rate. You know? Like a panic um, attack issue. 
so obviously she learned from what happened in the summer, played a few tournaments in the States, and then obviously put together this run that didn't look like some fairy tale one-off run. She's 18 years old, and I, you expect the next few years her game to get better. But if you were if you'd have told me before the tournament started that an 18 year old or a teenager won it, or there was two teenagers in the final, I'd have told you Coco Goff would have been one of the two that she would have been playing in the final. I cut you off. You were about to say something about the quality of her ground strokes. Yeah, she uh, her ground strokes were you know, I I, I liked it that she she hit the ball heavy to big target. Heavy to a heavy to a big target. Yeah, she would go cross a lot, open up the court, go down the line. Um, she played high percentage. It didn't make a lot of didn't make a lot of errors, and she held her ground to the baseline. She played solid, and you know what? She did great every one of her matches. She just came out. <laughs> Umpire said, "Who chooses to serve return?" Boom, she was ready to go. So each match, you weren't surprised that she was winning. I was tight behind the court when she played her semi against Sakari, and I was impressed at her margin. She hits the ball heavy, high up over that net, boy. She doesn't really miss, and she absolutely – and she hits that ball stone cold. Yeah. The first four or five games against Sakari, she just took it to her. I mean, it was almost like, you know, Maria's like, whoa. You know, and she made a little adjustment in the second set to make it closer, but that match was played completely on Renicano's, you know, terms. 100%. Now, what about what about Layla Fernandez? I mean, that was an incredible effort, incredible run. And you know what, too? She actually came into the Open. I remember, like, you know, she was in the 60s, um, but very little form, hadn't been playing well in the summer. But that's the greatness in tennis. Like, you put in the hard yards, you put in the work, you know. Sometimes you don't get the results. You're a little low on confidence. You win a match. Um, she was three points from losing third round against Osaka, and then the crowd somehow lifted her. She had a great ability, too, to bring the crowd into her matches. And somebody that's very small, she kind of reminds me a little bit of the way Rios plays. She takes the ball early. She can, you know, beat you by taking it really early, a little bit of deception. Um, she's got sneaky power for her size as well. Chrissy said something on the broadcast in advance of the final. She said that this girl has absolutely frustrated her opponents. You know, they've been smashing rackets. They've been having temper tantrums. Part of me thought of you when I heard her say that, that she has a knack for getting – she getting the players kind of out of their groove and getting them upset with themselves. Well, she played a lot of close matches, you know, and usually when a young player like that plays a lot of close matches, you know, you figure she's going to lose one of them. But what wasn't, what was surprising was in each one of her matches, the crowd gravitated to her. The crowd was pulling for her, like, you know. Well, it's because she's a peanut, man, right? Because she's the smaller uh, player. Um, well, listen, that doesn't mean the crowd is going to, you yeah. know, go for you, you know. But it was like she was a young American. They were giving her. But 
she would do these rolling fist pumps and then ask for the crowd, you know, support. I need your support. And they gave it to her. But I also like her game a lot. I, I, you don't notice that she's small, you know, that maybe she is five foot five, but she takes the ball early. She's got a sneaky pop on her forehand. She, um, she's got a good serve. She's, she opens the door, you know, slides it out wide, nice, like, inside out. Um, and she defends well. And she played clutch. You know, she was up against it in numerous matches. So people liked watching her play, watching her compete. And I'll, I'll say this, people like watching her problem solve. And now, did you know Radikanu, uh speaks Chinese? Did you know that before? The, did you know that? I did not know that, no. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, who knew? But, I mean, she's obviously kind of a global. Her dad is Romanian. And I, I didn't even know, you know, what heritage her mom is in Chinese. And so, like, all of a sudden, when she did that message in Chinese, it wasn't like, whoa, you know, one or two words. It was like, oh, okay, you... you <laughs> Yeah, no, she rocked the mic in Chinese. She she graduated like a few weeks before Wimbledon, like A levels, which is the highest level of high school. It's almost like pre college. Um, so obviously, she's a bright young kid with tons of talent and a ton of money right now. That's for sure. What did you think about Botik van der Zandeshop? What a tournament that kid had! You know what? You know the beauty of tennis. <laughs> that's the beauty of tennis and that sometimes it's not always about who's the winner like who would have been like the most unlikely star it would have been i call him van zandt you know van zandt was a, is a lead guitarist for springsteen this guy had never been to the states ever second round qualies he was playing brian selton's son ben shapiro uh ben shelton he was 10, uh, two points from losing second round qualies. And he said the only scenes that he had ever seen in New York or the States is watching it on Netflix or watching it on shows. So, the, not only, so I remember him when he won his qualies. He was so pumped. It was a big deal for him to quality. And then to go to the quarters. He beat Casper Ruud, man. He beat Casper Ruud early in that tournament. And, and I was, and I was watching and, that. I was watching him. Play, I was watching him play Casper Rude, and I said, "There's no way that, that no one could ever heard of this kid. He hits the ball, heavy, big. What? What did you learn anything about him that was interesting? Um, just just his story that you, you know what, like Karatsev in Australia. It, you know, this guy was before the year started. I, I, mean, I had no clue until, you know, I started looking up some stuff. Had made a hundred grand in prize money uh, since he started playing when he was like 17, 18. You know, so talk about he played a ton of futures and challengers and didn't have a lot of success until 2021. So to for him to go from where he did to make that jump, the same like Karatsev. That's the beauty of tennis, and it gives hope to other, you know, guys and girls that if you keep working hard, make changes in your game, something good can happen. Did you happen to talk to Mikhail Shoppers, his coach? Uh, I didn't. I, I didn't, but I, I played against him, and yeah. I heard that he just started working with him recently. I mean, it's a great story. It's a great story. That it's, It makes you feel good 
that not everybody's path is the same. Uh, Jensen Brooksby. Um, he's going to be a baller. <laughs> I mean, he's a, he's a very clever player. Um, he's a great counterpuncher. Um, he's got a little bit of like a combination of Florian Meyer and maybe Murray. Um, and he's much bigger than you think at 6'4", 185. If, when he develops like some pop on a serve, because that's the worst part of his game now is a serve. So somebody that's like his size, you know, he can't break 115 at the moment. But once he develops a, a, a big serve, you know, I mean, I, I'll be surprised if he doesn't finish this year in the top 50, but he's going to be in the top 20 soon. And like I said, if he develops like a big serve, kind of like somebody like a Burditch or, or you know, he serves at, at the same level, you, you know, as a Medvedev, then this guy could be top five. Another another player that frustrated the hell out of his opponents, man. Jeez. He, well, tor he, he just, tortured Taylor Fritz. He tortured. Well, that was a close three. I called that match. That was a very tight, long first three sets. And then they finished in the night. And, you know, that then he, he, he wore him down in the fourth. Um, and he had a, a battle with Karatsev. Battle. Um, I saw all of his matches, and then then he had the first round match with the crazy with um, the, 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 the Swedish guy, um, Mikhail Emer. Yeah, Emer. And then he refused to play for like ten minutes when he got a game penalty. And then the referee came out to make a decision on it, and they had this new rule now they could look at the incident with the tablet, you know, to win a set six one from Djokovic too. So. I saw all of Brooksby's matches. You know, he's a clever player. The most significant thing about the tournament, or at least the the most important thing, was, you know, the, the fact that the Joker was one match away from completing the the, the Grand Slam. That did not happen. Uh, Daniil Medvedev uh, really blew him out of the water. What were your perspectives on the the Joker's campaign to try to make the Grand Slam to try to get it done? Well, the men's had a lot more predictability to the business end of the tournament than the women's. Um, and I said early in the tournament on TV, you know, I was disappointed that the crowd, you know, first or second round, you know, wasn't behind Joker. And both Joker and Room didn't know courtside. They thought they were booing. And they didn't know that they were, you know, yelling for room, you know. Yeah. And I felt like the crowd would get behind him. Listen, Laver was the last player to even be in this position, let alone win it in 69. I was nine years old or eight years old then. And, like, you really weren't that familiar with it. So nobody's been anywhere remotely close there's like joker had won four in a row fed has been in it you know andre you know was in four in a row you know there was a few times but in the calendar year you know and when laver did it three of them were on grass not to mention you just didn't know about it but on the women's side we saw steffi do it in 88 win the golden slam and like seven years ago serena was right there she was two matches away so I personally was rooting for it. I wanted to see it. So considering how tough the path was for him to be in the position of one match away, 
I mean, he kept dropping the first set. I mean, it, it, you know, it was like every match he's dropping the first set. And then the last two matches, or even three matches, the match against Brooksby was physical. They had a lot of physical points. Berrettini was a tough, I mean, they had some, they had some unbelievable rounds. Physical match, finished late. Zverev, five-setter, finishes late. So he came in to the to the final. And it was a little softened know, up. A little softened well, up. Well, it's not well, he played a lot more tennis. He is the youngest 34-year-old ever. Uh, and I still felt like what we saw in Melbourne, I still kind of thought that Novak was going to be able to just rev up the engine one level and be able to take care of business. Um, you never felt like he'd played his best tennis. Well, I mean, there was, you know, a the bar's so high, but still. That a lot of times there's just a moment. And in that first set, full credit to Medvedev, he doesn't drop a point on his first serve, 16 of 16, and he was going big on his second serve, and Novak didn't have one look. One break, that's it. But where the match really changed in about, let's say, nine minutes or so. Um, about 40, second little, set. That, that was massive. But he had a break point the game before where he had no – looks in that first set. He actually missed one drop shot where he had a little opening, got a break point, didn't convert. And then remember um, the massive swing in the match, not the love for it. It was actually it was during the break point that he lost, that he was in the point and inexplicably the PA announcer didn't hit the mute button and the next thing you know, the music came on and they had to replay the point. Mm. It was in the middle of, it, it was off of a second serve. Then Joker lost that point uh, right away after having that break point. The next game he had love 40, doesn't break. He never recovered from that. But full credit to Djokovic for, I mean, excuse me, full credit to Medvedev. He just put his head down took advantage of those first two sets. And then even when the crowd got as loud and amped up as they possibly could for Joker, he just was a little bit flat. He was, a you know, and maybe just didn't have the explosion in his legs, you know. But listen, you, you, you play five-setter, and, and then I said all these matches sometimes have an accumulation. But you spin a little bit off of, like, where he was. I think Joker still could have won. But you realize that Medvedev dropped one set all tournament. That was when he was up two sets to none, and he was killing Van Zet. So he was a wrecking ball all tournament, a little bit like I call a Renekandu. Medvedev was playing, like, at the same level. But he was the number two player in the world, so it wasn't, like, that much of a shock. And make no mistake about it, he's a bad, bad dude. He doesn't lose a lot of tennis matches, man. Daniil. Like what you said about Renekano when you were sitting behind the court, you said, she doesn't miss a lot of balls. You who don't give a lot, he's not given at all is meant to get. 
his movement for 6'6", and his ability to defend out of the corners. Man, you in for a long day playing that guy, you know, just his ability to play the way he does at his size. You forget that he's 6'6". And and he's got a funky game, but don't you kind of feel that the, the space he takes up on the court kind of forces the opponent to go for more and more and more, and next thing you know, you're, you're missing. You're missing. Cause... Well, you just described that between Fed, Rafa, and Joker, all of them have the ability to shrink the court. Shrink the court. And now Medvedev has the ability. Movement is essential, you know, and when you can cover the court, Everybody likes to play offense, but when you can play incredible defense with your offense, that forces your opponent, you know, that like, it's like when you have a glove defending you in basketball. It's like, okay. So he's got a great ability to force you to overplay. It's a beautiful thing to watch. Tremendous with the Gary Payton uh, reference there. Moving out of the open, you know, Sinner just won a tournament, and Casper Ruud absolutely bulldozed a very tough lineup in in San Diego. San Diego looked awesome on TV. It was a little small venue at Barnes Center. It's a great tennis center. They got a lot of junior tournaments, and it's great. Let's just hope that they they can find a way and stay on the calendar because obviously Asia got canceled. They got in there perfect time this year before IW, but it just showed. That like, man, it'd be great if they could get like a 500, you know, because it looked like and maybe build a, a bigger stands. It looked like San Diego could handle it. I was there. San Diego was awesome. It was an, it was like it reminded me of a tournament back when I was a kid. You know, Nishikori was eating lunch where the people were eating lunch and, and you could be like tight on the practice. You know, it, it was a tournament that we used to have before Indian Wells, which was a great tournament, great week. Stellar Field, Scottsdale, Scottsdale, Princeton. So that's kind of what made me think about it. So somehow I would love to be seeing San Diego in that mix, you know, before an Indian Wells and maybe another. It's going to be interesting. We're going to have Indian Wells, obviously, in October. We're going to have it, you know, in March. So it's a great opportunity for the players. Um, And obviously Asia being canceled and, you know, who knows, you know, still obviously we're in, in massive COVID um, protocols and everything. And But it's great for the players, obviously, to be able to play twice at, at a venue like that. Let's move into the third set. This is the portion of the show where we talk about your career. We've done this so many times. All I'm going to no, ask you No, we don't need it. Uh, let, let, let's stick to that. I got one. Listen, listen. I got one question. One question. Man. Okay. Come on. You can even have be- that. Listen, your best memory of playing at Indian Wells as a player? That's a good question. Like, you know, if I think back, you know, it's like, man, I should have played better there. Never played as well as I would have liked to play there. You Uh, never had a good result there, huh? You never had a good result. I think I I got to the quarters twice. Mm -hmm. Um, And usually, you know, it wasn't a great recipe for me. If it was a great tournament and everybody was in a great mood and thought they were going to play great, (laughs) Usually, I usually played great when it was at a a lousy venue and people were whinging. So maybe if anything, it was just too nice of a venue. Did you ever have an epic win there? Do you have a great moment there? 
in the desert when Charlie Pastorell had the tournament and small, I mean, what was it like? Uh, you can't remember one thing, huh? I mean, I mean, he's got his hand on his head. He can't think of one good moment. You know, I mean, he, like, you, you know, it's funny as the older you get, the better you used to be. And I, I could tell, I, I had to play a couple of matches. I actually felt like 89. I, I, I was in good position. I felt like I was, you know, it's like, Okay, I've never, I've never had a good result here. Uh, uh, 83, I made the quarters when I was young. Um, but between that time, I didn't have any good result then. I don't know why, because it's on hardcore. It's my best surface. Just didn't play. You know how some places you play better? 89, I felt like I was going to play well there. But, like, maybe in my second-round match, I, I, like, badly tweaked uh, my stomach muscle. I finished... Uh, my second round match kind of serving sidearm. And I even won my third round match. I I can't even remember now. If you you have to go back to like your the A to B website, I think I beat Mancini. Uh so, same thing. Basically serving sidearm and hitting forehands. <laughs> and then I played Jay Berger in the quarters. Same thing. Only serving kind of like basically forehands. And then after that match, you know, I didn't play for a couple of months, but that that was part of my streak that my entire career, I played over 800 matches. I never retired in a tournament or in a match. So, uh, but but probably no way I should have played. Like, and I won a match, serving, and I lost a burger serving sidearm and underhand, just regular forehands. It was close. I want to think it was like five and six. It was like 10 breaks. And I was even pissed after losing that match. If I would have been serving normal, I would have won that match. I felt like that year, if I wouldn't have been hurt, I think I would have won it. Brad Gilbert just got heated up about 1989. Any great moment coaching out there? I mean, you had some wins, obviously. But... Um, yeah, I mean, 95, I remember. Um, they played uh, a Monday final. That was before... Um, it was like went to a 12 day and it was a Monday night final. Um, and it was Andre versus Pete 95 had a big buzz, but, uh, and it was best of five and Pete played a great match, beat Andre in straight sets. But I kind of remember that from a couple days before that, that's when Andre's dad, you know, um, had his first heart attack. So I remember Andre was playing with like a heavy heart, uh, there, you know, that, that happened and then 2001 i think that was a tournament for andre that when he won it that meant a ton to him because i think it was maybe the first tournament i'm not 100 percent sure that uh i'm gonna say like you're gonna have to dig back in history either maybe it was 85 andre might have been only 15 years old and i think he qualified and won around. So I think that was his first ATP tournament. Um, and obviously from Vegas, you know, you would drive and everything. So for when Andre to finally won and he beat Pete 2001, it meant a lot to him, more than almost any ATP tournament that I was with him. Because uh, it's like the desert, you know, it's a, you know, it's a close venue tournament to you. So, it, it, so that was really cool to see. And it was during an amazing start to the year where Andre had won the Aussie 
He won Palm Springs and he won Miami. He was on fire to start 2001 at, you know, 31 years old. Let's move into the fourth set, the 10 ball scramble. I say it and you say what comes in your mind. You ready? Yeah. No line judges on courts anymore. You know, by the second week, you know, the players were used to it. You didn't miss it. You know, will they, will they be able to afford it at other tournaments? Is there, like, a little simpler system? But you know what I would love to see? If somehow they get a box, not that expensive, that they could have it in the junior tournaments in college so we could eliminate players making calls, especially at big tournaments. But, you know, I'm sorry that, you know, it'll put a lot of linesmen out of work, but, you know, I, it just helped speed things along. So I thought it was great. I tell you who didn't miss it. And the players knew there's no point to challenge because it's you know, you no. Know. I didn't miss it for a minute. This is, are there less ball kids on the court? Did they dial back the ball kids? I didn't think they did that. You know, obviously with with Provo protocols, you know, mask and gloves, and and the you know the players got to put their towels in their own boxes and stuff like that. Did you feel that the players having to go to their towel at times affected pace of play? Well, that's still one thing that an umpire can determine. The umpire has to determine the pace of play based upon, okay, heat and conditions can play into it. Now, if the player can't get the, you know, his towel, he has to go back to where it is, you know, but I still think, that after a long point, when they don't start the clock until the fans are done clapping, but you should play to the server's pace. If the server plays fairly quick and he's not going to the towel, then a, the returner shouldn't be able to determine the pace. It should to be at the server's pace and the umpire to kind of police that. The reason I ask is because it seemed to me that Curios was having a hard time playing to Bautista Agu's pace because he was and he I, used did, I did that match. I don't think that he was playing that slow. And you know No Nick and saying like Nick was having a hard time to go to the towel. He complained about it. Yeah. And then once you complain about it, you know, if they don't change it, what you gotta do is play the next point. You can do it a couple of times. But sometimes players make and and they take their argument too far and then it hurts their game. Medical timeouts? Uh, medical timeouts and bathroom break are just crushers. They're, they're a part of gamesmanship that, that go on now to, you know, I hate to say that they determine the outcome, but they are a strategic ploy. And we saw numerous players leave the court sometimes as much as 12 minutes when there's a locker room right there. What there needs to do is be a rule change. Obviously, we saw with Murray and Sitsi pass on the center court, you know, a couple of eight minutes. And there needs to be a rule. What is the determination when you leave the court if you say, I'm going to change my gear? Okay? Is it three minutes? Is it five minutes? What is the, that? If I'm going to the bathroom, it shouldn't be more than three minutes from the time that you leave the court to coming in the bathroom. If it's the maximum for me in the history of the world, if you go to the bathroom and change head to toe, you should be allowed five minutes from the time you left the court to be serving or returning 
playing a point every 30 seconds thereafter you lose a point now we know the rule it, and it, i can't yeah. believe they allow players to do it multiple times and and so many players do it you know when they're down and then the medical timeouts what is this mystery of the determination you know they have to do the evaluation so sometimes the evaluation takes anywhere from three to six minutes three minute injury timeout sometimes there's not even a, a um the doctor or the trainer court sign so that takes another three minutes so the the player that's ahead mo more often than not it's probably 90 percent of the time when the player calls for this timeout they're losing and i don't think you should ever be able to do it unless it's on your serve nor should you ever be able to do it in the middle of the game if it's 30 off sorry you got to forfeit the game yeah because you're essentially just you're just trying to ice your opponent i mean obviously there are real cases yeah. every once in a while something does happen but when the same players do them over consistently i just say if if you change the rules the players will have to adapt. It's just like if the umpire said you've got to play to the server's pace, like you can't be taking an injury timeout in my mind or taking a bathroom break or a gear change when your opponent is serving for the match. Do you think um, rackets and strings should, there should be some kind of legislation? Do you think that the technology is homogenizing the game? not even close i mean if anything the racket technology has gone backwards i mean you worked in rackets in, in, in the late 90s more players were experiencing with longer rackets and wide bodies you remember the, the players so many players were playing with wide bodies that galbraith now the, yeah and so mo much more players are not playing with th that they're just playing with rackets that they you know played with essentially like the you know a lot of the you know there's some bigger ones uh, there's definitely a, a lot of players are playing lighter rackets smaller grips but the biggest innovation is poly strength it allows you to take a you know a bigger cut and be able to control the ball but to me that is absolutely like a level playing field you know if you take away the stringing technology how does a five six you know player or five seven player be able to compete you know, it would be advantage taller players because if you t made it less power, naturally bigger players maybe w would still be able to produce a higher power. Are the tennis courts too slow? Um, sometimes. <laughs> yeah. You know, I just would like to see, I hate to see super fast courts with fast balls. I hate to see super slow courts with super slow balls. So, like, if we're playing with a faster court, let's play a little slower ball. We're playing with a slower court, let's play a little bit of a, a faster ball. Do you have a favorite ball right now? Is there a ball you love? <laughs> yeah, good luck getting balls because tennis business, like, is, is booming right now. We have more people playing tennis. But, yeah. like, in my shop, Bragg Tennis Nation, BG Tennis Nation, I mean, yeah, we can't get Wilson U.S. Open balls or you can't get pens. It's like... It's hard getting it, like, let alone getting, you know, equipment or, or you get a few rackets or shoes. Tennis is booming, but like so many industries right now, the chip industry, every industry, the supply chains are massively hurt. So hopefully at some point we will get supplies back 
And all of these fans that we gained to starting to play tennis during the virus, because obviously tennis has been that socially distant sport that's really benefited from it. Hopefully we will be able to keep those players, but we need to get more supplies. <laughs> I love the Technofiber ball, man. Let's move into the fifth and final set. This is the king of the court, but I don't want to do king of the court. I just want to ask you one thing and we're going to shut it down. Um, how, how are you feeling about pro tennis? You know, first week of October, how are you feeling about everything kind of moving towards the back end of the year into 2022? You know, obviously there's a, a, a month, month is, you know, six weeks left in the season. But I think this will be, I, I'm expecting this to be the most interesting uh, political offseason ever. And that is something going to be done about the, we've been talking about it ever for the medical timeouts and especially these extended bathroom breaks where we saw because it, uh, it's massively happening at the juniors and college. And once they make some clear-cut rules, hopefully that will filter down to all levels. But that's something that, they, you know, they talked about, you know, limiting the grunting for the ever. They never did. But, you know, we did. This was a big innovation for no linesmen. Now can we get something at all slams, all ATP, WTA events on these things? Um, and then, obviously, the biggest political thing that, unfortunately, has become political, but I think it's going to come up, and you've already seen the writings of it in Australia, that they're probably not going to let in any players that are not vaccinated. The NBA is about 95% vaccinated, and look at, you know, what happens when the 5% and a few of their stars are saying they're not going to get vaccinated. Football has got, like, 99% vaccinated. So I do believe that it, it will be coming, whether or not that you can't fly, you can't get into any restaurant. I, I feel like that it's coming. And we have a ton of tennis players that are unvaccinated. So it, it's just kind of like, you know, how the players adjusted to having no linesmen. If all of a sudden, if a rule comes down to December 15th, the Aussie Open, you can't go to the Aussie Open unless you're vaccinated. Because I heard it's something like, under 50% at the Open on the women's tour is not vaccinated of the main job players. And it was under 30% of the men's. So that means you're going to have like a month or so to get vaccinated to play. And then will that be the impetus? Will they then make a rule on the ATP, WTA, all the other slams that you cannot play unless you're vaccinated? Because I actually feel like that's the smart call. I mean, most companies now... You know, big companies, if you want to work for them, you got to be vaccinated. And listen, you can choose to not be vaccinated, but then you can choose not to work for the company. So, and these are a lot of expenses that the tournament's got to create all these bubbles. So I will be surprised if that situation isn't broached or is there a player revolt from these players that don't want to be vaccinated? And then if, if there's a huge percentage of players that stay in United, what will happen? So I, that's why I say I think this is a huge unknown and political situation that's going to happen the next, you know, six, eight weeks. 
Brad Gilbert, always a pleasure. Are we going to see you in the desert? Are you going to shake down here? To, um, to... I, I might take a drive down to the desert. And you? I'm here already, baby. I'm, 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 I'm full takeover right now. I'm here. I'm here for the duration. I'll, I'll probably take a, a, a drive down. There's nothing like, you know, taking a couple of hour drive from Malibu down to Palm Springs. And it's just an amazing event. And so cool for the players to have this option since Asia was canceled. Now, what's your move? Do you do you tell them you're coming and you get credentialed? Do you tell them your final eight club? Do you buy a ticket? Like, how do you how do you maneuver down there? What's your move? I I, I have not thought about that yet, but I think I can get a credential as a former ATP player. But I don't know if that gets me a ticket. So I guess if I, I want to go, I have to buy a ticket. I mean, that's incredible. You have to buy a ticket. It's okay. You should be able to make a couple calls, man. I mean, come on. Listen, thank you very much. Brad Gilbert, have a terrific week, and you are released. Thanks, buddy. Huge thank you to Brad Gilbert, and thank you to Sergio Tacchini. See them at SergioTacchini.com and use my code, CRAIG30, in all caps, at checkout to receive 30% off of your order. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.